The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Welcome to our very first Wednesday night worship of summer 2020. This summer we're going to be preaching a series called Villains of the Bible. And as the title suggests, we will set our attention on some of the most despicable and heinous events in world history. However, it's not our ultimate purpose to consider these evil men and women. Rather, our goal is to show how the light of the gospel shines brightly against the backdrop of evil. We will observe how God permits evil to rise up for a moment only to show himself mighty over every enemy. So even though this series is thematically following the villains of the Bible, it's really designed to show Christ as our mighty champion, conquering every foe on behalf of his people. My son Mordecai, many of you know him, he is two years old. He recently learned a phrase that he loves to use, bad guys, bad guys, bad guys. Everything now is a bad guy. So he has imaginary villains that he's chasing around with shovels, uh, little hand garden shovels. Bad guys, bad guys. And the question is, what makes a bad guy? What makes someone a bad guy? See, Mordecai doesn't really know. In fact, embarrassingly enough, sometimes he calls family members bad guys, or friends, or even random strangers bad guys. But what is a bad guy? Theologically speaking, nobody is good except God alone. And that means that all of us, are bad guys. So as we consider these evil men and women, you need to know that your unrestrained heart would do exactly the same thing as these villains of the Bible. So as we look at these historical figures one by one, we must also recognize that we are far more like them than we are like Jesus. One surefire indicator of a bad guy is somebody who is violent. Those who abuse their power to harm others should rightfully be called out for their wickedness. Murder and violence surround us. We see it all the time. It's a reality of the world that we live in. But the question is, where does this come from? Why does this exist? Our passage today speaks to the very first recorded act of violence in the history of the world. Tonight, we are going to learn about the very first murder, namely Cain killing his brother Abel. If you've ever experienced violence, or if you've been violent towards someone else, or if you've been afraid of being attacked by somebody who is violent, then this passage is incredibly relevant to you. But I think you will come to agree with me by the end of this sermon that the relevance of this historical event goes way deeper than that. Let me open this now in a time of prayer. Father God, we ask that as we come to this ancient text in the beginning of Genesis, that you would help us to see Jesus more fully. Help us, Lord, to see that even in the face of great darkness and even in the face of this violence, we can look to the cross and see that Jesus is our Savior and our King. Lord, we love you, and we pray that all throughout the summer, as we consider the villains of the Bible, you would help us to see how you are our King and our conquering hero who strives on the path of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 4. Here's the way that we're going to explore this passage today. First, we will consider the victim, then the perpetrator, 
the motive, then the crime, and finally the sentence. Let's begin now with the victim. Let's get a, a character sketch of the character of Abel. Follow along in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. What's the best way to learn about a crime scene? Interestingly, it's the same way that we learn from our Bibles, by asking a ton of questions. So let's ask some questions that will help give clarity about this man, Abel. First, how was the victim related to the perpetrator? It is likely that Cain and Abel were actually twins. It says in these verses that Eve conceived once and that she bore twice. It is possible, maybe even likely, that this was the first set of twins to ever be born in the history of the world. Secondly, what was his job profession? Abel was a shepherd. Now we see this lowly job function as an outward picture of spiritual realities many times in the Bible. There are a lot of famous shepherds in the Bible. Here are just a few. Abraham was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. The prophet Amos was a shepherd. Now, not all shepherds were godly in the ancient world. In fact, very far from it. But it seems that Abel is the first in a long line of godly people that God would lead into the profession of shepherding to serve as a picture. Now, what was his spiritual life like? We learn from this passage that Abel worshipped God. He brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions, and he killed the animals to make a sacrifice to God. How did he know to do that? Did God teach him that? Did Adam teach him that? Ultimately, we can't be as certain because the Bible doesn't tell us, but it does seem that God's killing of an animal to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness probably had something to do with the practice. We also ask the question, why did God accept his sacrifice? And this is key. Does God love meat and hate salad? Is that the point here? No, that's not what we're supposed to learn from this, this passage. Let's consider the fact that God is never sustained by any sacrifice. He says in Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What are you going to do about it? You can't do anything. Everything belongs to him. Every animal is already his. God doesn't need animals, nor does he need vegetables. His sacrifices, the sacrifice given to him, do not feed him or sustain him in any way. However, God's pattern for sacrifice in the Bible always requires the shedding of blood. It was designed to point forward to the ultimate shedding of blood that would take place at the cross. So it seems as though God has clearly instituted a practice that he expects Cain and Abel to follow. It's unclear, to me at least, whether or not Cain, how much at least, Cain and Abel knew about the practice. What did they know about God? What did they understand about him? Consider the fact that they don't have the Bible. They're in Genesis chapter 4. They don't have anything before that. But also consider the fact that their parents, Adam and Eve, walked with God. So we have to be careful not to overestimate 
but also not to underestimate what they knew to be true about God. Maybe they knew that all sacrifices required the shedding of blood, and maybe they didn't. But what we do know here is that they knew God accepted one sacrifice and that he did not accept the other. Ultimately, what we see here is that it's not just the sacrifice that was accepted. Look again at verse 4 really closely. See how it says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering? In Hebrew, word order is very important. It is incredibly significant. And in this case, the linguistic clues are pointing us to understand that it was Abel who was first accepted, and then his offering was accepted. The person was accepted by God, and then his sacrifice was accepted. Now allow me to make the case for you to show you why Abel and his sacrifice were accepted. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, Jesus speaks very briefly about Abel. And in that verse, he calls him righteous Abel. Now, without doing an entire sermon on this, although I would very much like to, it's important to know that nobody is righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 3. We are only able to be made righteous by the grace of God through faith. And this means that when Jesus speaks about Abel being righteous, he is intrinsically declaring that Abel had faith in God, and that is what caused his sacrifice to be accepted. This is further fleshed out for us in Hebrews chapter 11. The very first person listed in the hall of faith is Abel. Here's what it says about him. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died... He still speaks. Abel was a man of faith. And because of his faith, he sought to love the Lord by offering up his best. So who was Abel? Let's define him this way. He was a righteous, faithful, God-honoring shepherd who offered a sacrifice properly to the Lord. Now let's consider the perpetrator. What do we learn from this text about Cain? We learn in verse 2 that he was a worker of the ground. He's like a farmer. And because of the way that God curses him later, it seems like he's actually a pretty good farmer. He had a green thumb, as it were. Later on, God says to him, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you, which indicates that at this point, the ground did yield to him. He was a good farmer. And on the outside, he's probably very much like Abel. In fact, they might have been identical twins. They had different jobs, but if you or I were to look at them, we might see the same person on the outside. But on the inside, they were quite different. And they show that by the way that they worship God. Verse 5 says, For Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. If Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was given in obedience through faith, then we see that Cain and his sacrifice were not accepted because of his lack of faith. Now, I wonder how many Cains are watching this video right now. Maybe you look like a Christian, you go through the motions of a Christian, but how many viewers of this sermon normally go to church, normally put money in the plate, who can remember the date of their baptism, who raise their hands during a worship service, they talk a good talk, and they say, all of this is sacrifice to the Lord, yet it's empty. Such people are just like Cain, giving sacrifices that God doesn't want. We talked about this this past Sunday from Isaiah chapter 1. Such people think that they have earned God's love or are somehow deserving of his acceptance. 
Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah, spoke about people like this. He said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Cain found out right away that his sacrifice was not accepted. This is an odd thing, right? How did Cain know that God didn't like his sacrifice? Honestly, I'm not really sure. But somehow it was made very evident that God did not want what he was putting on the altar. Not everyone will be given this awareness during their lifetime. I think perhaps the most terrifying verse in the entire Bible is found in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, which says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This means that some people I preach to every week will probably not be in heaven. That means that some of you viewing this sermon right now who call yourself Christians might be self-deceived. This verse means that I need to ensure that I have come to Christ by nothing but his blood. For that is the only reason God the Father has let me into his kingdom. And if you think that may describe you, if you think you might be like Cain, repent and run to Jesus who saves. Cain realized that his worship was not received. He discovered and did not run to God to seek forgiveness. He did not have the gift of faith. Instead, his response was one of anger, and his face reflected his anger. He was sullen. He was dejected. He was bitter, and it showed. Only God can read people's hearts. But anybody could have read Cain's anger from his facial expressions. You might think that I've been hard on Cain here. You might think that my character sketch of him has been skewed because I know what he's about to do to his brother. You might say, well, you already know the end of the story, so you're reading that back into his character. But consider the way that 1 John chapter 3, verse 12 describes him. It says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. This verse literally refers to Cain as being a child of Satan. It's not a literal statement. We know who his parents were. It's Adam and Eve. It just told us in the text. Adam is his biological father. But compare this now to what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. In short, Cain and his offerings were not accepted because Cain was not a child of God. He fell into the only other category the Bible gives us, a child of the devil. So now let's jump now to uh, the third point, which is the motive. You know the way this story ends. Cain is about to kill his brother. But just like any good investigation, we need to understand why. What was it that caused him to shed innocent blood? Look again at 1 John 3.12, and let's read the whole thing now. It says, We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain was furious because he believed that he should be accepted exactly how he was. He hated his brother because he saw that God loved Abel and accepted him. And John actually uses this as a way to understand why believing uh, believers always contrast and conflict with the unbelieving world. It explains why the unsaved always hate the church. They refuse 
to approach God on his own terms. Now stop for a moment and consider the incredible mercy and kindness of God. Before Cain had the opportunity to kill Abel, God intervened. God saw Cain's anger. He looked at him and he did something that God has done for very few people throughout the entire history of the world. He spoke to him verbally. Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now don't miss this. God knows his particular temptation. He knows that the temptation to kill his brother is crouching at the door. It is waiting to pounce on his heart. He knows that this temptation will fill Cain with rage and will cause him to commit the first murder. God knows that. And God knows exactly what he's about to do, yet he lovingly warns him not to do it. There's a lot of information here in these two short verses that have led to theological debates for thousands of years. But for now, I want you to just take away two truths. First, do not mistake God's warnings for God's forgiveness. God warned Adam and Eve, yet they still ate the fruit. God warned Israel, but they still rebelled. Jesus warned Judas, but he still betrayed him. And God has warned you. You're watching this video tonight. You're hearing the word of life. What are you going to do with this information? Just hearing the warnings does not mean that there's been any genuine transformation in your heart. If you get emotional when you hear a warning against anger, but then you go home and you're still filled with fury against your spouse or your children or your co-workers, then you have every reason to doubt that you've actually repented. If you hear the warnings against pornography and you go home and you sink right back into that addiction, then you have every reason to be concerned that you are just like Cain. You can fill in the blank with any sin. They all fit here. God has been very kind to warn you, turn and repent now. So I am calling on you right this moment to genuinely let go of your sin and run to Jesus, who alone can forgive. Secondly, I want you to see that you are responsible to rule over your sin. But if you're not in Christ, you're incapable of waging that war. If you do not have the Spirit of God fighting alongside of you, you will be defeated by sin, just like Cain was. Temptation is going to come against you, and you will crumble. Now, if you're not a believer, you might be an outwardly nice person. In fact, you're probably a lot nicer of a person than I am. But you need to know temptation is going to jump you. And when it does, if you're not in Christ, you have no defense. There is no weapon this earth could offer that would keep your heart from collapsing under the weight. Now, I'm not saying that you will fall to every temptation of every flavor on every occasion, but ultimately you will fall. But God has shown us what the proper fight looks like. In Galatians chapter 5, 16, we are told, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The Spirit of God is working in us to cause us to produce fruit or evidences that we belong to Christ. But let's go back to Cain. He was not trusting God. He had no faith. He did not heed the warnings. He did not repent. He was acting in full alignment with his father, the devil. Which leads us to point number four, the crime. We finally reached the moment when we call the CSI. The homicide is at hand. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke 
to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Have you ever noticed that the first thing Cain does here is to speak to his brother? Now, we have no idea what that conversation was like. All we know for sure is that it ended up with Abel dying in the field. I don't, I don't want to mislead or add anything to the Word of God in an inappropriate way, but I don't think it's outside the bounds of logical assumption to gather that Cain coaxed or manipulated or persuaded his brother to leave a place of safety and to join him in a place where no human eyes could see what was about to go down. This was not a crime of passion, if there is such a thing. This was premeditated. It was calculated. Cain set a trap for his brother like a lamb being led to the slaughter. But God saw. God saw what Cain did. Cain slew Abel in cold blood in that field where no human could see his struggle or hear his cries for help. Now, we don't know what instrument of force Cain used. We don't even know if there was a weapon or if he used nothing more than his bare hands to snuff the life out of Abel's body. We don't know. All we know for sure is that there was blood, and there was blood covering the ground, being soaked into the dust from which man was created. Now, obviously, we can't visually examine the crime scene, but as we will see in a moment, the mentions of blood make it seem like this was a messy murder. There was probably some kind of struggle involved. But ultimately, Cain was conquered by temptation. He fell sway to the leading of his sinful flesh. His anger and his jealousy and bitterness led him to raise his hands in violence against the one who should, by every estimation, be the very best friend in his entire world. Murder is a serious crime. Murder is a complete rejection of God's authority over that person's life. By taking somebody's life, you are putting yourself in the place of God. Who gives you the right to determine that person's life should come to an abrupt end? Murder is the arrogant belief that you are more worthy of life than the other individual. It is a denial of the image of God that is imprinted on the one who is killed. A murderer is self-consumed. They are self-deceived. And they are self-appointed as judge, jury, and executioner. In the list of seven things that are abominations to God... On the, the third one on the list is hands that shed innocent blood. Jesus told Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by it. It can be easy for us to stand in judgment and look at Cain and say, man, that guy's act of violence was clearly a violation of God's order. And we can proclaim guilt from our seats on our couch at home and say that his actions were in violation of God's standards for human interaction. Of course we can do that. But ultimately, you need to see that you are no better than Cain. And neither am I. We stand condemned just like him. Consider the way the New Testament broadens the definition of murder. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, You have heard it said those of, uh, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. Have you ever been sinfully angry at somebody? I, I have. Have you fumed with fury as your anger boiled, talking under your breath, thinking of the ways that you would like to get back at them, devising schemes in your mind that you'll probably never carry out, but you delight in fantasizing about them? Have you ever verbally been abusive to somebody, calling them names, mocking them, threatening them, teasing them, aggressively retaliating against them? 
if any of those describe you, and there's many more that could fit into this category, then you are worthy of the same hellfire as Cain. Consider the words of 1 John 3.15. This is directly following the portion that we read earlier about Cain killing his brother. It says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Your hatred, your bitterness, your detestation of others is worthy of hell. Your prejudice against people who look different than you, or who sound different than you, or who were born in a different country than you, that makes you guilty of murder in your heart. Honestly, I think the sins of racism and personal or cultural superiority are very much intrinsic in the human heart. And those are battles that Christians especially must take care to fight every day. Even recently, we've seen serious and dangerous racial tension and hatred that's turned to violence across our nation. It's happening right now. The sin of abortion is another that is an epitome of violence. It is the violent dismemberment of an innocent and helpless human being. It is perhaps the greatest stain on our nation in these sinful days. Now you might say, look, it just doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to me because I'm not a racist, and it doesn't apply to me because I don't support abortion. Well, let me ask you, are you naturally inclined to hate people who think differently than you? Does your Facebook feed reveal that you are demeaning to those with different opinions than you or different politics than you. In our society, we divide over every position often before we even have a strong grasp on what we actually even believe. Our country right now is filled with tons of hate to the point that you can hardly speak to anyone about anything without them accusing you of being Adolf Hitler. And why is that the case? Why are we so filled with hate? It's because we are born under sin, just like Cain. And that same sinful nature that dwelt in him dwells in us. So we are filled with hate, we are filled with rage, and according to Jesus, that is just as evil as murder. In other words, if you thought you could get away with it, you would have already pulled the trigger. Your heart is desperately wick, and you can't even know the extent of it. There is no such thing as a person who would never hurt a fly. You are sinners, just like me. We're murderers at heart. And I, I'm not standing here in judgment over you. That's not my job. I'm not worthy to hold that position. This should reveal that we all, myself included, are in desperate need of the grace of God. Let's see how this turned out for Cain. Point number five, the sentence. Look again to Genesis chapter four, this time starting in verse nine. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and, settled, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Even as Abel became the first saint to enter into paradise, Cain was being sent into exile away from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, there's a lot here that I'm not going to cover, but I will just briefly reiterate that the farmer could no longer farm. He became a wanderer in the land of Nod, which just means wandering. And strangely enough, God protected Cain from his retribution. Now, what is this mark that God put on him? I honestly have no idea. I have no clue what this mark was. And neither do the scholars, apparently, because they're all in disagreement about this. Was it a spiritual symbol of some sort? Was it a glowing aura around him, like some have suggested? Was it a twitch, like some scholars have suggested, that he had something like epilepsy, that when people would come around, he would go into an epileptic seizure? I don't think so, but I don't know. Why did God keep him from being killed? I assume it was to avoid the proliferation of violence in the early days of the earth, but honestly, I don't know that either. Later on, God would institute the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9, but for now, God seems to desire to preserve the life even of those who have performed murderous deeds. But what I want you to see here boils down to two major things. First, God saw Cain. When God caught Adam and Eve in their sin, he first asked them a question which revealed their sinful hearts. Where are you? Where are you? Here he does the same thing for Cain. Where's your brother? Where's your brother? God knows exactly where Abel is. This becomes apparent in just a moment when he says, I don't know who, where my brother is. Where, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, I know where he is. His blood is crying out to me. It's difficult to read exactly what his intention was in this statement when Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's difficult to read exactly what was going on in his heart because it's hard to read the tone. Some say that it was an attempt to throw God off the trail. Cain thought that he was going to get away with this and trick God into thinking that he had no idea where his brother was. And that's possible, but I don't think it's likely. I agree more with the theologians who argue that Cain was saying this in a sarcastic manner. He was saying, I'm not his keeper. That's your job. You are his keeper, God. In other words, he's passing the blame to God and saying, where were you protecting your precious Abel? You can't even protect your beloved. But God was there. And it was not Adam, and it was not Eve, and it was not even Cain that was the first one to taste death physically after the curse into the world. No, that was, that was Abel. That was righteous Abel. That weight, weight was hoisted on the one person in this entire story that is called righteous. Which brings us now to the second thing I want you to see. God says something very interesting that will be carried forward throughout the Bible. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Obviously, this was not a physical scream. Let me just, let me just take a moment here and teach a biology lesson. Blood cannot speak. It does not have a mouth. It cannot formulate words. But blood does carry a message. And what was it saying? Justice. Give me justice. God, give me justice. I was innocent and I was killed. Cain deserves death. A life for a life. Give me justice. Abel's blood would stand as a lifelong reminder that Cain carries blood guilt with him. But here's where things become amazing. How did we describe Abel? He was a righteous, faithful, God-honoring shepherd who offered sacrifice properly to God. Abel is a type of Christ. Right here in the beginning of our Bible, we get a picture of the Savior who was to come. Jesus is the righteous, faithful one. He's the only one that always honored God. He is the good shepherd who offered himself as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. That sacrifice of Abel's was only acceptable 
because it pointed forward in faith to the true sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. And Jesus was the epitome of gentleness. He was never violent or abusive. He was meek and mild, yet just like Abel, he was killed by evil men. But unlike Abel, Jesus knew it was coming. He foretold his death on multiple occasions to his disciples. And he was not led into a trap. No, Jesus said in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Just like Abel, Jesus' blood was spilled. And just like Abel, his blood speaks. It calls out. But listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of the blood of Abel. Abel's blood calls out for justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. A life for a life. Jesus' blood proclaims salvation. Jesus' blood says, my life for your life. Jesus' blood says, mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. Jesus' blood certainly speaks a better word. It is finished, he cried. Abel's sin was laid on Jesus. My sin was laid on Jesus. If you're a Christian, your sin was laid on Jesus. And God the Father crushed him with the weight of his own wrath. If you look at the cross, you see what I deserve. And you see what you deserve. But I will never know that wrath because it was all spent on Jesus. A life for a life. His death in place of mine. Violence producing salvation. Isn't that amazing? So as we close the book on Cain, this great villain of the early history of the world, we see ourselves, and we see our desperate need of a Savior. And more importantly, we see that God allowed the sin of extreme violence against his own son so that he might redeem and restore his, own, his enemies like you and me. Let's pray. God, I ask that every single person here would be redeemed by the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word, mercy, a life for a life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.